Hello, Manchester Creek Community Church. My name is Jeffrey Baker. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, occasionally I do some teaching, and today is one of those days. Uh, so today we are going to continue through the book of James, which is a series we have been on for a few weeks, uh, though we took a break last week to uh, celebrate our mothers and talk a little bit about parenting. Uh, so today we're going to talk about a verse, a passage uh, that is pretty hard. It's uh, James 2, 14 through 26. And one of the things that makes it hard is that it really cuts to the very core of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, these 13 verses, they touch on some of the most fundamental and cherished doctrines on our, of our faith. What is the relationship of faith and works when it comes to salvation? Can you really be saved if you have one but not the other? Speaking of faith, what is faith? Is it simply intellectual understanding, such that if you, you know, really nail down your doctrines and believe that they're true, you're saved? Uh, and if that's the kind of faith that saves, if it's just nailing down your doctrine, isn't it weird that God, the God who is so good that we measure all other goods by his goodness, would leave such a huge ethical loophole in his plan of salvation? Now, what do I mean by that last question? Well, several years ago, I remember talking about the gospel with a non-Christian friend of mine. Not that I've never done it since, uh, but this is a very specific conversation I'm remembering here. And I, I used the typical concepts and typical verses that, that you might when you were sharing the gospel. I'd say something like this. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, humankind has been held captive by sin, and they need God uh, even to be able to turn towards him and become not captive to sin. And unfortunately, what we learn from Romans 6.23 is that the wages of sin is death. But thankfully, another thing we learn from Romans 6.23 is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank God. Well then, how do we receive this gift? Well, Galatians 2.16 says that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Or, like he says in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So thankfully, God doesn't save us because of anything we do. He doesn't look at us and say, wow, you guys have achieved so much. You know, the good, you know, if we weight up all your good works and put them next to all of your bad works, your good works win, fantastic, you're in heaven. God doesn't do that because he knows we'd all fail. Um, and we, one thing that we know is that when he saves us, he saves us from sins past, present, and future. Um, so for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, this is a totally freeing concept. Uh, we've felt this freedom. It is a core part of our identity. And when I shared that, I totally expected my friend to see how freeing and awesome and true that was. What he actually said was, how can your God be good if he would set up such an obviously problematic ethical system? I mean, after all, what if a serial killer said your sinner's prayer, but then kept on killing? Uh, I mean, his future sins are uh, forgiven, right? So is he going to get to heaven even though he's just murdering people left and right? Or let's talk about something more realistic. There are bosses out there who exploit their employees. Uh, they, they ask them to work ungodly hours. They ask them to uh, do things that nobody should be asked to do. Um, and let's say somebody... You know, he prays that sinner's prayer and he believes these doctrines. But if his sins are saved past, present, and future, if he's forgiven of all of those sins, what reason does he have uh, to turn from them? What reason does he have to treat his employees well? 
Does he get to go to heaven just because he learned the cosmic cheat code? Well, that's pretty awful. Uh, so that, you know, uh, that cuts to the core a little bit, doesn't it? And if I'm uh, going to be honest, I think a lot of us, when we, we think about this, when we think about these questions of, wait a minute, where's repentance fit into our vision of the gospel? We look at it, we say, well, that's hard and that's controversial. I'm going to turn away from that question and I'm not going to ask that. Yay, God. This passage in James doesn't let you do that. And if I'm focusing a lot on this question right now, it's because I believe that the sort of questions my friend asked in, uh, when I shared the gospel with him uh, is really behind the way James phrases the things that he does. Now, I know that uh, James phrases things in this passage in a very difficult to understand way, and I will do my best to help you understand why he phrases them the way he phrases them. But what I want you to think about right now is that the very uh, core uh, of what James is saying is a question, and it's this question of how can you be saved if you've never repented? Uh, so before we go any farther, let's go ahead and read God's word to us. James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead." All right, so if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, a couple verses in that probably shocked you. And you know how important these passages are, um, the concepts in this passage are. Uh, so it probably won't come as a surprise to hear that over the centuries, this passage, along with the book in which it was contained, which it is contained, has proven to be uh, probably one of the most controversial in the New Testament. Uh, so honestly, I'd first like to thank Darren and the rest of the teaching team for aligning the teaching schedule so that this passage uh, falls on me. Way to take it easy on the uh, unpaid volunteer. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it really is a difficult passage, and I'm, I'm glad to help you guys uh, walk through this because so many people have tried to say things like, well, this isn't really part of the Bible. God's not speaking to us through this. Uh, and it's not just fringe people. Uh, Martin Luther, um, the great reformer, uh, once called this book, the book of James, an epistle of straw because he had a hard time reconciling it with what Paul said about justification by faith alone. 
And, uh, you know, when you have a verse like James 2.24, uh, which specifically says you are not justified by faith alone, uh, it's not surprising that he, um, that he struggled with that. Now, I believe Paul and James mean something different when they use the word justification, and I will explain that later. I don't want to get into that right now. Um, but, uh, surpri- you know, suffice to say, uh, since the teaching team has chosen this book to preach through over the next several weeks, and we've dedicated a whole week to this passage, we believe that this is God's word. This passage in James is as inspired by God as Romans 3.28. It is as inspired by God as Romans 6.23. The question is not, is God saying something to us in this passage? The question is, what is God saying to us in this passage? The question is not, does this passage apply to Gentiles saved by faith? The answer is yes. It's very clear because James was written to a a group of people who have been saved by faith, a group of Christians. And there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So the fact that this was written to Jews uh, who believe in Christ does not mean it doesn't apply to us Gentiles. Now what I'd like to do is walk through this passage section by section. And I know some of you are going to be looking at James 2.24 the whole time, saying, but Jeff, that that passage makes me not really want to pay attention to the rest of this. And I'm going to say, for now, trust me, it doesn't, it's not as bad as it looks. Uh, I know it looks bad. Uh, but James means something different than Paul. James and Paul are answering different questions. And because they're answering different questions and writing in a different context to different people and at a different time, uh, the words they use can have slightly different meanings. And in this case, they do. Uh, I'll talk about that more in more detail later, but I want to give that to you as sort of a handhold so that, you know, while while we're talking about this, you don't jump off the ride. I want you to be able to use this as a, uh, this idea that they might be saying different things as a safety rail to keep you on board so that you can get the most out of this passage. Okay, so enough talking about the passage in the abstract. Let's get going. James begins his... uh, uh, his message here uh, with a really strong statement, which is pretty typical of James and very typical of this passage. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Who cares? Now, I know a lot of people read that and they want to add some wiggle room by saying, Well, James did phrase it like it's a question. Maybe the answer is there's some good. One, let's be honest, that's obviously not what he means. You know, it Basic reading comprehension uh, takes reading context in mind. He obviously means that the answer is uh, no. By the way, I should finish that. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. And I know it can be a bit gauche to uh, say, well, the Greek says, but because it's so important to uh, the correct interpretation of this passage, well, the Greek says uh, that, it's an <laughs> that it is a rhetorical question. It begins with uh, the particle may, which when that begins a question, uh, really clearly indicates that it's a rhetorical question with the implied answer of no. So the answer to the question, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but that does not have works, can that faith save him? No. That faith that does not spring forth in works cannot save anyone. Now, let me be clear, though. 
I really like the ESV here because it doesn't say, can faith save him? It says, can that faith save him? The point is not whether you're saved by faith. The point is, a, is about looking at the quality of the faith by which you are saved. Works, in this case, are something that is an expected output of salvation. It is an expected output of the faith that saves. And so if you have works, if you have the kind of faith that saves, you will have works. And if you don't have works, you don't have the kind of faith that saves. But that's not the same as saying that you need works in order to be saved. I'm going to repeat that a lot throughout this sermon because that is essential. Now, in the next two verses, James uses an extremely pointed analogy to emphasize uh, the point that true faith requires works. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So you're supposed to hear this analogy of someone who hears that someone is poor, uh, too poor for food and too poor for clothing, and where people just say, man, well, I hope you can get some food. You're supposed to see that as shocking, right? Uh, so the, the assumption of this passage is that's absurd. And you've kind of been primed for that if you've read James on the whole, because uh, right before this passage was talking about the sin of partiality, the sin of seeing rich people as more important than poor people. And even before that, uh, there's this emphasis on the rich who, uh, in chapter one, who are selfish with their money and don't use it to help the poor. Um, but I'll say, when I read this, it took me a while to realize it was an analogy because it's surprising to me how often even I and others I know uh, uh, do this. I mean, how often do someone you know, come up to me uh, or when someone gives me a need, do I say, man, I'll pray for you? Um, and how useless is that? <laughs> Let's be clear. I'm not saying that prayer is useless, but prayer, when it's a smokescreen for an action that is an answer to that prayer, is useless. You know, if someone comes up to me and says, you know, I'm really doing my best, I'm trying hard, but I, I don't have money for my daily food, uh, you know, the answer might not be, I'm going to pray for you. The answer might be this $20 bill that's in my back pocket. Um, so there's really something very uh, challenging here. There's something really uh, hortatory here. Uh, but in the end, this is an analogy for what faith without works is like. In the same way that a brother or sister who comes to you and says, I only have my, uh, my undergarments to wear. That's uh, basically what the word there, uh, translated lacking poorly clothed means. Uh, and I, I don't even have the money for bread for the day. Uh, in the same way that simply saying, be hungry, does not fill their belly, and saying, be warm, does not give them a blanket. In the same way, saying, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I love him. But then going off and doing only the works of the devil is useless. It, if all of our works are essentially works of the devil, but our words are words that are godly, those words mean nothing. They haven't saved us. So moving on from there, well, let's explain that a little farther because I think that this is something that 
is real, a very subtle point. It's a very subtle point, but it's one that is absolutely essential. And it's also one where I think um, a lot of people struggle. They think that James here is being different from everyone else in the Bible, but he's not. Jesus says the same thing. Paul says the same thing. For example, in Matthew 7, 18, Jesus said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And in John 15, 5 through 6, he said, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So the assumption here is that if we go back to basic biblical theology, right, is that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and if it's true faith, you receive the Holy Spirit who regenerates you, who turns you into a new man, who then performs good works. This happens, this is what's said in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And the first part of this is an essential passage for salvation by grace, but let's look at how it ends. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, but let's keep going. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, are prepared, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this idea that good works must follow faith is entirely biblical. The entire New Testament teaches this. But remember, the point is not good works precede faith. It's that faith brings life, and from the new life springs work. Uh, I'm going to use an analogy here, uh, really taken from Matthew, Matthew and John, which talks about uh, a, a good tree being able to bear only good fruit, or every vine that is connected to Jesus, which is all of us. He's the true vine, and anyone connected to him bears good fruit. The idea there is not that the fruit creates the life. That's that's nonsense. But you can tell whether something is alive by whether it bears fruit. Do you see the difference? Let me give you an example. Last Sunday, and thank you, Manchester, Grace received this plant. She received this crazy tunia, lucky lilac, uh, as a thank you for being a mother. Do you think it's alive? How? How do you know? Well, I think it's alive. I think it's alive because it has these vibrant flowers. Now, these flowers have not created the life of this plant. But because the plant is alive, it has flowers. And I can tell by the vibrancy of its leaves, by how uh, beautifully purple these flowers are and how open they are and how nothing's really shedding, that it's alive. What about this? Is this alive? It's not. Well, how do I know? Uh, well, for one, this came from my crabapple tree, and it's on the it was on the ground. Uh, two, look at these leaves. They're brittle. You know, I can just... Uh, sorry, janitor. <laughs> but you can just tell. It, it, it's brittle. The leaves are browned. They're dead. You can tell from the fruit of this stick that it's not alive. And you can tell just by looking at it. It's the same way with faith and works. In the same way the flower does not create the life of this plant, your works don't lead to your life in Christ. 
But if you don't have the works, if you never flower, if you look like this, you don't have that life in Christ. Doesn't matter what you say you believe. A life in Christ produces flowers. Now I'll actually move on a little bit. James ends this passage super forcefully. So also faith by itself, if it does not uh, have works, is dead. It's exactly what we just talked about with the plants and the leaves. One thing I will say is here's a place where I don't super love the ESV translation and uh, at least some commentators like Douglas Moo agree with me. I think a different way of translating that is not faith by itself, but faith in itself. Why am I being so pedantic there? Faith by itself makes it sound like you need faith and works to be alive. That you need faith and works, you get that, God looks at it and then says, great, now I'm going to make you alive. But like I just said, that's not really the point. Uh, but faith in itself, the idea is that that faith is dead in itself if it doesn't produce works. That faith is just this dead, brittle stick. He then moves on uh, and says something like, uh, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So you can imagine, this is sort of like a Paul, like a James saying, um, you know, you do you. You know, maybe uh, one person's thing is having faith and another person's thing is having works. I mean, I'm going to be a little anachronistic here because James was probably one of the first books, if not the first book in the Bible. But, you know, Romans 12 has acts of mercy listed as a spiritual gift. And 1 Corinthians 12 has faith lifted, listed as a gift. So, hey, maybe, uh, you know, one person gets faith, another gets worth and James says, no, that misses the gospel entirely. There may be different gifts we all have, and there are. Um, and God may give a special gift of faith to someone, but there is an absolutely basic thing that everyone has to have, and that's faith, and it's the kind of faith that leads to the reception of the Holy Spirit, and, it's the kind, and that must lead to works if it's real. Now, again, I want you to notice the phrasing here. I will show you my faith, by my works. Again, this is the logic of James. Works are the evidence of faith. They do not come alongside of it. We are saved by faith, and it is through this faith God renews and revives us, and because we are revived, works come. Works are the evidence of faith, not the cause of salvation. James finishes up this section with another very strongly worded thing. Man, you're, you're noticing this as well as I am, I bet. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's pretty rough, isn't it? You know, uh, this idea that God is one, it comes from a passage called the Shema, which Pastor Al actually talked about last week. Uh, and that is at the heart of the Jewish faith. It is the heart of the Jewish faith, this idea that God is one. It's in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James says here, yes, you have great theology. That's wonderful. Um, and I really like the way uh, one commentator put it. You know who the most orthodox theologians are? Demons. Their theology is great. But instead of they tend to get things right. They know that God is one. If you read um, the Gospels, do you know, you know who's the first people to recognize that Jesus was the son of God? The demon possessed. 
It's crazy, isn't it? Because the demons noticed it. Um, but here's the thing. All of their perfect theology doesn't save the demons. Perfect theology did not give demons assurance of their salvation. It gave them assurance of their damnation. Because the, uh, because the demons know exactly who God is. They know exactly how much trouble they're in. So if you have great theology, but terrible works, if you can talk about, you know, uh, if, you can, if you can tell me what hypostasis means, but you lie about your political enemies on Facebook, your theology is worse than that of the demons. Because while you recognize, you know, things about Christ, you don't recognize how far you are from him. And, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm coming on strong there. It's because I went to seminary. I'm going to be honest. I loved it. I think theology is important. It was a really great experience. But man, you find people there who fight hard for really in-depth theological stuff. Like, you know, what's more important, superlapsarianism or infralapsarium? Infralapsarianism. Wow, I even struggled to say the word. And I'm not saying that's an unimportant topic if you even know what it means. And if you don't, you are welcome not to find out. Um... (laughs) Uh, but people will talk really hard about that as though knowing these really deep details is what's important. But no, what's important is knowing Christ and knowing him well and being in a real relationship with him and the kind of real relationship that transforms you. That's what's important. It's because we love him that we start asking some of those questions. And it's because we want to love him better. But it's not because having that theology saves us because having that theology is not what faith is. Faith is having a relationship, a real, honest-to-God, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a real belief in him that really, follow, that, that really intends to follow him. And you can tell whether you really have that faith, not by if you have your theology down, but by if you, whether you have been transformed by his spirit. And that is always shown in works. I know I'm repeating myself a lot, but it's really important. Now, this next section of the passage is where people start really struggling with James. It's most likely this next passage that's caused some people, including Martin Luther, uh, to doubt the God-breathed nature of James. But like I said, at Manchester, we fully believe that the book of James is as God-inspired as the book of Romans. The question is not, is this passage wrong? It's not wrong. The question is, what is it saying? So before going much farther, instead of just talking around the verses, let's read them. And after we read them, I'm going to do my best to explain what's so great about them uh, and what they're saying and why James would choose such a remarkably difficult uh, way of saying what he does say. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, so in these verses, uh, James offers up a biblical proof 
of his position that true faith does not exist apart from works. And uh, true to the way he's been arguing throughout the whole passage, he immediately goes for the hardest hitting example he could think of, which is Father Abraham. Now, in case anyone listening here is confused about why I'm spending so much time talking about how hard this verse is, let's put James 2.24 side by side with Romans 3.28. Romans 3.28 says this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James 2.24 says this, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, while there are a few other places in the set of verses that bring the same difficulty, this is about as stark as it gets. All throughout the sermon, I've been saying that for James, works are a necessary product of salvation, uh, but not something that saves along with faith. I've been saying that the real question in James is not whether works are necessary for salvation, they're not, but whether it is necessary that works flow from salvation. But here, James says that we are justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, do I need to scrap my previous statements? Did I get this far into writing my sermon, read these verses and say, oh, oops, oh well, I don't really have time to correct the previous paragraphs. I'll just start correcting my statements going on from here. I mean, after all, I'm an unpaid volunteer. I don't have time for revisions. Obviously, I did not say that. Now, like I said earlier, uh, this seems really difficult. But believe it or not, the solution is pretty mundane. Words mean different things. And uh, unless you're reading a very well-edited textbook written in the modern era when we started caring about stuff like this, and frankly, the Bible is not that, words are pretty ambiguous. One of the things that you'll, uh, you'll find when you look into how linguists and how uh, even Bible translators talk about the meaning of words is they don't talk about its, a word's meaning. They talk about its semantic range. Words can have a range of meanings, and it's not unbounded, uh, although the bounds do change given different contexts, uh, uh, social contexts, time period, even the context of the argument. The only way to really fully know the specific meaning that is within that semantic range that a word has is by looking at the specific uh, way it is being used in an argument or a sentence. And look, I know that this is the sort of thing that can be really annoying. I know that when people start talking about the ambiguity of words, uh, it's often the setup for a very annoying conversation. You know, I've had so many conversations where somebody just read postmodern philosopher Jacques Derrida, and they really want you to know. That's not the case here. Words mean things, but they can mean different things in different contexts. James and Paul mean something different. Well, how can we tell what they uh, both meant? Well, one of the things I said earlier uh, was that in order to really understand what James meant, and honestly, even to really understand what Paul meant, we need to understand the questions they were trying to answer. And I would also add the times in which they were written. Thing number one, fact number one. James was very likely written before any of the works of Paul it was very likely written before James ever met Paul at the Jerusalem Council. It was written before the controversies over Gentile entrance into the people of God really came to the fore. That was something that Paul dealt with. That was not what James was dealing with here. Paul 
was dealing with that. For Paul, who was a missionary to the Gentiles, uh, probably the most important question he was asking was what does it take to have initial entrance into the people of God? What does it take to get that initial declaration of righteousness by which someone is saved and by which someone enters into the kingdom of God? Um, why was he writing that? Well, it's because there were many Jews and many people who came from a Jewish faith who said, in order to enter the people of God, in order to get that declaration of righteousness, in order to say, I'm, uh, in order to say, I have Jesus' righteousness imputed to me, you actually have to follow the law. And it's on the basis of following the law that you are a member of God's people and therefore saved. And Paul said, no. You're a member of God's people because you have um, Christ's righteousness given to you in faith. So Paul was very interested in that initial declaration of faith, that initial declaration that God gives when you first believe in Jesus Christ, that you are saved and Christ's righteousness is your righteousness. You, that, for Paul, is what justification means. It's a very technical meaning of the term, and that is not the meaning James uses. In fact, I, I'm not sure that's the meaning it ever had, or maybe it did, but that's, that's a meaning that was really developed in argument with, with Judaizers, with those who believed you had to follow the Jewish law. It's a true meaning, and it's almost always what it means in Paul. Um, but the reason for that is it was developed in argument. And you see this not only here. This is a very common thing. Um, uh, if you look later in church history and you, talk, you, know, you start looking into some of the uh, arguments about uh, the Trinity and whether Jesus is God, you'll notice technical language becomes more technical as the arguments happen, as the arguments go forward, uh, as the Orthodox argue with the heretics. Uh, the Orthodox start showing up their meanings and they become less ambiguous and a lot more technical. The problem here is all of that happened several years after James wrote this book. At this time, the question was, how can you be saved if you still act like a heathen? Why does he use the word justification though? What could he mean? Well, there's two possibilities. And those two possibilities are, are basically this. I'm trying to see if I found my, uh, my verses here, but I think I'll be good to go. Possibility one is that justify just means vindicate. Um, Abraham did these works and he was vindicated because he did these works. In other words, his works showed that he... Um, that he was saved, that he had faith. He had the kind of faith that produces works. And he was vindicated by his works. That's possible. There's a second meaning. And some commentators, like again, Douglas Moo, argue it's more plausible simply because it's used more often in the New Testament, and it seems to fit the context here. And that's this idea that um, he's referring to a final judgment or at least pointing towards a final judgment, especially in James 2.24. Um, a final judgment where both believers and non-believers give account for the works they committed in the body. Now, I know that's something not everybody likes to hear. Uh, I know some of you are saying, what? 
believers that come up for judgment. But again, this isn't really something that Jesus and Paul didn't say. And when we talk about things in the Bible, we need to talk about how it fits with the whole Bible. Even when we want to talk about our understanding of the gospel, we need to talk about how our understanding of the gospel fits with everything in the Bible. Otherwise, our understanding of the gospel is not the biblical gospel. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, that all will be led up to him. And based on really, frankly, how they treated the poor, they will either be con- you know, considered his people or not his people. Romans 14, 10, um, Paul talks about, uh, talks to a group of Christians in Rome and says that, quote, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, I really don't want this to cause you guys anxiety. And I really like the way John Piper described this in a sermon that he posted to the Desiring God site in 2005. It's not that our works save us in the end. It's not that we get to the final judgment seat of God and we have these scales and you look at the works on one side and you, bad work, good works this side, bad works this side. Oh good, this one went down, so there's more here. Great, you're in. No, that's not the case. The thief on the cross would have been in big trouble if that were true, as John Piper actually said. Um, the point isn't about whether you can lose your salvation. It's not talking about what happens if you sin after your salvation. None of that. It's simply saying that works are evidence that you have salvation. Uh, and it's plausible that what would happen in that uh, Romans 14 giving account of works is that those works are, are put forth as evidence of the initial faith. Those works are the flower that shows that you have life. It's not about how much you have. It's not about uh, uh, earning your way or earning a reward necessarily. It's, it's, it's about demonstrating that you, you have life, that life is demonstrated in works. So look, if there's one thing, so, 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 to, so to summarize here, Paul was referring to the initial declaration of faith and James was at most referring to a final judgment or works that spring forth from the initial declaration of faith are put forth as evidence that that faith was real. So if there's one thing to get out of this passage, it should be that works are not antithetical to faith. I've heard of churches that say that. I've heard of churches that say things like, well, let's not do good works because then we're trying to earn our salvation. That's crazy. (laughs) Your salvation, you are saved to good works. Um, And that's actually what he means by another confusing verse here. That's what James means by another verse that I think confuses a lot of people uh, that talks about, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. What, what does James mean by completed? Another way of translating that word is to say brought to perfection or brought to its goal. The goal of faith, you can say salvation, but only if you say it in the broadest possible sense. The goal of faith is to bring you into a relationship with Christ, which transforms you into Christ's likeness and transforms you into the kind of person who does good works. So your faith is completed by works in the sense that when you become the kind of person who does good works, when you become the kind of person through the Holy Spirit, through God's changing you who does good works, your faith has achieved its goal. Think of it like this. What's the point of the flower? What's the point of this plant? Well, from my perspective and from the perspective of my wife, 
who owns the plant. The point of the plant is that it makes pretty flowers. So why do we give it, why do we give it life? Why do we put it in potting soil and go to Lowe's to find more potting soil? Why do we make sure to water it on a regular basis, right? Why do I, as the owner of this plant, give it life? So that it will flower. Why does God give us life? So that we can know him, and in knowing him, become like him. Moving on, James gives one more example. And honestly, it's the exact same point. And it's the example of Rahab. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Yes. Yes, she was. But if you see justified as, the, as not was she saved because of it, because the word justification and the word saved don't necessarily mean the same thing. But if you use justified, more in the sense was, was not Rahab's faith seen as real by the fact that she took the Israeli messengers in and sent them out by another way? If you don't know that story, it's in Joshua 2. I don't have much time to go through it now, but she risked her life because she be- for the sake of uh, Israeli spies in order, um, in order to let them in to take over her country because she believed in the God of the Bible. Her faith was proven by her actions. She disobeyed her king to honor a God in whom she believed. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith faith apart from works is dead. I hope I don't have to explain that much more. Um, It's the same thing we've been talking about. The whole point of faith is to bring you to Christ, to put you into a relationship with him through his spirit, and it's that same spirit that transforms you. So if you don't have those works, if you've never had works, perhaps you've never had faith. Now, I, I want to be careful because I know it's possible to overstate. I've said this a lot, a lot, of, a lot of times, this sermon here. But I want to be clear, the point is not that you are saved by works. It's that if you are saved, you will have works. The point is not that you will have more good works than bad works. The point is not that you will not still continue to sin and struggle with sin. You will. I do. You do. Everyone I've ever met does. James does. Paul did. Only Jesus did not. But the point is that faith, true faith transforms. And James here will not let us forget that. So what do we do with this? And I know I'm running a little over, so I won't spend too much more time, but wouldn't it be a little ironic if I spent so much time talking about theology in a passage that's really about how theology uh, must lead the works and I don't have any application? It'd be super ironic, wouldn't it? So please forgive me if I go on for maybe five more minutes. Uh, but what do we do with it? Well, one, we recognize that that's what the passage is about. We recognize that the commands of God are valid. We recognize that living a Christ-like life is essential. The first thing we do is we ask ourselves, do we have saving faith? For most of you, I'm hoping the answer is yes. Again, you don't have to look and say, am I still sinning? 
have I still sinned? I think if that was the, the standard, we'd all be in real trouble. But ask yourself, have you been transformed? Is there a real transformation? And is that transformation in line with what God says that transformation should look like? You know, Galatians tells us what that transformation should look like. It contrasts the works of the flesh, things like sexual morality, impurity, enmity, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Now, how about this? Dissensions, divisions, envy, with fruits of the Spirit. We always talk about fruits of the Spirit, but never talk about what they're contrasted with. Because the whole point is that if you have the Spirit, you don't have those others. Or at least you're, you're being transformed away from it. But what are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Why am I making a point like that? Well, you know, there's some interesting connections here with uh, other parts of James in this passage. It talks about how faith that doesn't uh, uh, shoot forth and works is useless. But that word useless, or at least another word that can be translated useless, appears elsewhere as well. In verse 126, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And it's interesting that right after this passage is the famous passage on the need to tame the tongue. Guys, I know so many people who believe that what it means to be a Christian is to have the right opinions, to have the right political opinions, and to shout them loudly, and to say mean, vile, evil, and ugly things towards your enemies. And I'm going to be frank. If that's all your Christianity is, is saying mean things towards atheists or saying mean things towards uh, Democrats or uh, if you're left-leaning, which I know most of this church is not, so I'm going to pick on Republicans more uh, just because I don't want you to get yourself off by saying the other, get yourself off of this by saying, hey, you know, the, uh, uh, it's the other guy. Um, no, it's you too. Um, but if that's all our faith is, is saying mean things about the other guy, you don't have faith because your faith is not loving towards your enemies. And I'm being blunt about that right now because we're getting into a political season. <laughs> and in the political season, we are very tempted to lie about our enemies. Now, I want to be clear, most of you guys are great. I'm friends with a lot of you. And even those of us who sin, like me, I see some of the stuff that I say and post and I know I have to repent. Um, I'm not saying that if you sin, you know, you're not saved here. Um, I'm going to keep saying that. But I see what some of you post to Facebook. And I hear what some of you say about Democrats. And some of you lie. Some of you lie a lot. And I know that's harsh to hear. Uh, but one thing we can do well here is say, hey, we take our faith seriously enough. We take our faith in the God of truth and the God of love seriously enough to speak truthfully about our enemies or even to speak truthfully about people with whom we disagree. We don't post conspiracy theories to Facebook. We don't try and say, I am free of sin because I can't verify that it's not true. If you can't verify something that's not true, but you also can't verify that it is, it's a conspiracy theory and it is slander to post it. And if you do so under the name of the God of truth, if you post things that are just 
slander and lies and say, I'm doing this to speak the truth and love of the God of truth, but what you're really posting is slander and lies, you're committing blasphemy. So don't do it. And frankly, some of you do. I've done it too, and I apologize. I'm saying all of this, not to question your salvation, but to say, if you really do have the Spirit, some of you who do this, uh, and I know some of you are out there because I see your Facebook posts, you will be wounded by what I am saying, but it will be the wounds of a friend. And you will see this, and you will pray to God for repentance, and you will stop posting lies about your political enemies. What else can we do? We can think about how we can serve others, serve the poor. Um, I know that sounds like a very liberal thing to say after what I just said, um, but it's just right here in James, and I'm not talking about political things that we can do. I'm not talking about whether you should believe in welfare or not. That's a totally separate conversation, and we can disagree. I love disagreement. I love posting things that are challenging and that can provoke uh, discussion. What I don't like is posting lies. Um, but we can, we can take care of the poor. We can take care of the poor among us. We can uh, catch ourselves when we're tempted to say, I'll pray about that. When what I should say is I'll reach into my back pocket. Uh, we can catch ourselves when we say, wow, the church is struggling. Let's pray that the church finds its money when really what we should be doing is tithing. Um, because part, honestly, that's how the church is able to keep up food banks. It's how we're able to help, uh, help those in our congregation who are poor. Um, it's by the gifts you all give. Um, but honestly, I've gone on for a while, and I'm a little afraid that if I keep on going, my wife is going to be looking at me uh, as I listen to this and say, wow, Jeff, you really rambled on for a while. So I guess with this, uh, I'm going to let you go and, and worship the Lord, worship the God of truth, worship the God who brought you into a relationship with him so that you could become more like him.